1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tari. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his lyrical and brilliant new book, Who is Allah?, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015, the legendary scholar of Islam, Bruce Lawrence, Professor Emeritus of Religion at Duke University, wrestles with the question of who is Allah?, through a dazzling range of textual, aesthetic, and performative registers. Who is Allah treats readers to a delectable buffet of the breadth and depth of Muslim spirituality. How do Muslims invoke, remember, define, and debate Allah while seeking to live a life that accords with his norms and template of piety? That is the central question addressed in this book as Lawrence introduces readers major facets of Muslim ritual life and intellectual traditions, both past and present. In our conversation, we talked about the idea of performing Allah, the intellectual history of the idea of Allah, Allah in the thought of the Muslim mystics Ibn Arabi and Baba Muhayyuddin, the mobilization of Allah by Sayyid Qutb and Usama bin Laden, Allah online, and the Indian artist M.F. Hussain, who is Allah is a fascinating page turner. That will make a great gift to family, friends, acquaintances, and even strangers, and that should work splendidly in the context of classroom discussions on Muslim theology, Sufism, ritual practice, performance studies, and the fine arts. So here is my conversation with Dr. Bruce Lawrence. Hello, Dr. Lawrence. How are you doing? Great. Nice to hear your
0: voice, Charly. Nice to be uh, back online.
1: Uh, well, uh, w- wonderful uh, book, Dr. Lawrence, uh, very lyrical, very inspiring book on this uh, uh, difficult question of who is Allah, which is the title of this book. So really looking forward to this conversation. And the first question on new books in Islamic studies is always biographical. And to you, it would be a two part question. Uh, firstly, uh, could you share with us the story of how did you become a scholar of Islam? And secondly, uh, how did you get to write this particular book?
0: Well, thank you for the double question, and uh, either part of it would, would require probably an hour to answer, so let me see if I can do both of them in five minutes. Um, I guess in my, in my experience, a college of a, a scholar of Islam is not made but invented. Uh, and I was certainly never intending to be a scholar of Islam, um, but I did love Arabic language from the time I was in college. Uh, and also later developed um, interest in Sanskrit, Persian, Hebrew, and Greek. But I started out not to be a scholar of Islam. I wanted to be a diplomat, you know, or at worst, at least, an international lawyer. But um, I'm old enough that I was in college in the 60s, and then afterwards I had to do military service. I joined the Navy, and that cured me of both diplomacy and law. (laughs) Uh, I saw too much... um, headwind and too much uh, possibilities for slippage in either profession. So I got a scholarship to go to seminary. Uh, That fueled my interest, uh, continuing interest in Arabic, but also led me to revisit and rethink Islam. And then after seminary, I went to grad school, learned Sanskrit, uh, kept up with the Arabic, dabbled in Persian. And before I knew it, I was defined by others, not myself, as a scholar of Islam. And so I've continued to uh, labor or do labor um, as a islamicist or scholar of islam but actually i still think of myself as an abrahamic pluralist so i'm really drawn to the full range of prophetic wisdom uh, that comes out in all the traditions that cite and credit uh ibrahim or abraham as their source uh, with both limits and benefits of that lineage so that's how i came to be a scholar of islam Uh, this book was a little bit stranger it's probably even more accidental than my voyage and journey to becoming a scholar of Islam, one of my close friends and colleagues, Carl Ernst, uh, initiated a series from UNC Press. Uh, It was labeled um, ICMN, uh, that is to say Islamic Civilization um, and Muslim Networks. Carl asked me to join him as a series co-editor back in 2002. Um, We've since published 18 books in the series. And most recently, our editor, Elaine Masoner, who's a terrific motivator, expediter, Um, Elaine asked us to answer some questions, and there were questions like, what is veiling? What is a madrasah? And then the question of, who is Allah? Well, Sahar Amr got the veil. Another friend and former colleague whom I think you know, Ibrahim Musa, got the madrasah, and I landed Allah. (laughs) Or I might say Allah landed me uh, because it wasn't my intent to write such a book. But once I began, I couldn't turn back, and I didn't give up. Uh, the book has absorbed me for the past five years.
1: Now, I was very fascinated by the way you frame your project uh, in the introduction uh, to the book. And you mentioned that you are interested in this book uh, in exploring how people perform Allah, the performance of Allah. Uh, could you elaborate on what you mean here and how the idea of performance connects to the central thematic uh, of this book?
0: Well, that's, that's a great question. And it really goes to the heart of what... Um, I found myself trying to do once I was landed or drawn to this uh, improbable uh, and, as you say, very challenging topic. Um, I think it goes back to another colleague and friend of mine, uh, Vincent Cornell. He's now a professor at Emory, but I knew him as a colleague at Duke uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, and Professor Cornell invited me um, to join him in becoming uh, co-editors of a Work, which was called the Wiley-Blackwell Companion to Islamic Spirituality. We started back in, actually in 2011, almost, almost four years ago. And as we were talking about it, um, Vince, as I know and Vince Cornell said to me, well, I'm really good at text, and, and I know a lot about people and places, so why don't I take the uh, half of it that deals with expressive approaches to Islamic spirituality, and you do the rest? And I sort of thought, well, what are the rest? Well, the rest is everything to do with performance. So when you get beyond words and places and people, all of which are important and all of which dot the landscape of Islam as they do every religious and political and social and cultural tradition, you're looking at performance. And for me, performance, both in that project um, that we're now completing and should be out next year called the Wiley Blackwell Companion to Islamic Spirituality Uh, I'm effectively the editor for the performative part that includes devotional practices. It includes literature, especially poetry. Um, we look at visual media. Uh, we also have several, um, several articles on music and song. And of course we have a long article on the internet. So I found myself thinking that both of these are important, the expressive and the performative notion of Allah. But I guess to answer your question slightly differently, um, I've always been bothered by what I will call, and others have also called, um, the Cartesian dichotomy. That is a notion that I think, therefore I am, that thought is what defines me, or defines us, or defines, it doesn't matter here whether we were talking about, religious, or political, or social beings, that in effect it's our thought and our mind that directs everything we do. And I think over time, I've become much more a Pascalian than a Cartesian. That is linking myself much more to Descartes-Pascal, who actually, of course, was also a 17th century and a, a colleague, and, and at least um, contemporary, uh, of Rene Descartes. And in one sense, um, I believe, and I think I've tried to follow in this book, um, John Searles, the, the Berkeley philosopher, um, who argues that every speech is also an act, But at the same time, every act is also a form of speech. So there's not a mind-body dichotomy. There is, as it were, a kind of perpetual, uh, interactive, uh, responsive, and complementary relationship between mind and body. And so for me, when I think about Allah and think about this book, I really try to explore what it is that informs the whole being, informs the full body before narrowing down to the mind. And so that's why... Somewhere in the introduction of the book, I say that if we're going to approach Allah, we have to look at daily reflexes. And that means listening, but it also means seeing, feeling, and even being touched by the divine presence. And that to me is about practices. And so practices are the heart of my book. So
1: let's continue this uh, line of thinking. Uh, The first chapter of your book is called Allah Invoked. And here again, uh, we see the significance of the body uh, is is very much central to this chapter and you talk about ways in which touch and tongue and even sight uh, connect to uh, how Allah is invoked in multiple contexts uh, and in multiple modalities uh, by Muslims and non-Muslims for that matter could you tell us a bit about that discussion and how you think about the body as a receptacle of invoking Allah uh, in this chapter
0: yeah uh, well I again you, you know your your questions are really probing me at the at the deeper side of what I've tried to do in this book, and one of the things I do is instead of just saying "Who is Allah or how do we think about Allah or who are the great minds on Allah, I think if we follow what I lay down for myself as the imperative of this book to have a Pascalian and not a Cartesian worldview to think of the whole body and not just the mind as as the super um controller of everything that's bodily and human. Uh, th- that There's so much in the expressiveness of Islam uh, and use of Allah that I find endlessly intriguing. So inshallah, if God wills, Alhamdulillah, all praise to God. Allahu Akbar, which I'm always careful to say when people ask me what does it mean? Or they tell me, God, as of course Christopher Hitchens, whom I address in this book, says, Allahu Akbar means God is the greatest, but of course he reverses his saying God is not the greatest. But I think it's a mistake, in fact I'm sure it's a mistake, to say Allahu Akbar means God is the greatest. It really implies God is greater than anyone who is, or anything we can imagine. So one of the elements that many people have already asked me about the book is, why do I begin by defining Allah not as the greatest, the almighty, uh, the absolute other, but instead defining Allah as the thing, the absolute, the one. I could have almost said that I'm trying to explore the Tao of Islam, but sachika Murata beat me to it. Um, some of your listeners may know her. She's a wonderful scholar of Islam, uh, also the spouse of Bill Chittick, and they both uh, teach um, in, in New York. And her 1992 book was called The Tao of Islam. But for me, Islam is more than the Tao, uh, the thing, the absolute, the one. Allah can also be, it doesn't sound so nice, it could also be Oat instead of Tao. It could be the other, the absolute, the thing. In other words, it doesn't matter how you play those attributes. Allah is the absolute beyond us, the thing we cannot imagine. And this is where I find it's so important to think practically. We cannot imagine, but we can aspire to touch, to hear, to follow, and when we die, to rejoin. So, as you know, in that chapter, one of the crucial phrases that I explore is that phrase from the Holy Quran, Inna lillahi wa inna illahi raja'un. And for me, uh, inna lillahi wa inna raja'un are not just words that can be recited over uh, someone's grave, or, as you know, often can be found on tombstones in Muslim cemeteries, To me, this phrase "In lillahi wa in ilahi rajaun" first of all means that we're always connected to Allah, even when we think we're not. So, one of my retorts to uh, Jack Chick and Christopher Hitchens, and you may have also seen the piece that I uh, recently did. It was an op-ed in the in the Washington Post uh, where I answered Pamela Geller, and I said, even if you deny Allah, or even if you castigate Muslims, you have to realize that that doesn't disconnect you because this phrase, as of course many others in the Quran says, we're always belonging to Allah, even when we think we don't, or even when we try to separate ourselves. And so it's not just a kind of, um, you know, in, in, in the long run, by and by, when I death, I'll come to, I'll come to see. It's also in daily recollection, um, even I would say it's emblazoned on the hearts as a mantra, that we belong to Allah and we are continually and always returning not simply at the moment of our demise. So I try to capture something of that, if you will, that lifelong journey back to the source that I think is the deeper message. And of course, it's always strongest in poetry. And one of the poems that I cite towards the end of my book is from Rumi, where Rumi says, a life without his love is nothing but slow death. A life without his love, the love of Allah, is nothing but slow death. So in one sense, what characterizes um, some devout Muslims, especially, but not only those that are called Sufi, is this perpetual engagement with Allah, not just simply for prayers, not simply for slogans, but as it were, a kind of reflex, or, as it, or I would also say as a heartbeat of everyday life. Uh, in the next chapter,
1: you provide what uh, one might call a masterful intellectual history of Allah over time and space, and you discuss uh, the uh, the thought of multiple Muslim thinkers from different traditions such as philosophy, Sufism, the, uh, theology and so on, uh, on the idea of Allah, how they have approached the idea of Allah over time and space. So what are some of the challenges that are attached to the very enterprise of knowing the unknowable or intellectually understanding Allah? How, uh, what are some of the ways in which that challenge has been um, confronted by Muslim scholars over time and then what are some of the central questions and discussions that have animated Muslim intellectual thought on Allah in different scholarly traditions uh, in Islam?
0: Well, um, all your questions are huge and important. And this one, I just have to confess was the most difficult chapter of any of the chapters to write. Actually, maybe the one on the internet was almost as tough because it's never ending. There are so many different vignettes and possibilities on the internet. But at least there, you're kind of dealing with everyday material. But the question of Allah Defined for Chapter 2 really haunted me. I said I worked five years. I've probably been working my whole life in this book, but I only started to write it and actually craft it in the last five years. But on this issue of Allah Defined, after having said that I am a Pascalian and not a Cartesian, that I believe in the whole body and not the mind, I find myself... Returning to the mind and thinking, who are the giants? Who are these great thinkers? And how can I possibly try to summarize them and try to make sense of their contribution, not only to Islam but to human history, in a brief chapter? So, one of the—I I, will just say that I threw away—I threw away more drafts and restarted this chapter more than any other, um, and so finally, what allowed me to tackle it and to put something that's. It's not representative, at least um, indicative of how I think about the problem of defining Allah. Um, I had to do what most people do who are really smart. Um, but It took me a while to figure it out. You have to tell a joke. (laughs) When you're dealing with something as crucial as this, um, as fraught as the topic of Allah, um, I think you have to allow yourself a measure of calm and balance um, in the flow of words. And so I think that means telling a joke. And I started this chapter with a joke from perhaps the most famous Muslim trickster and jokester of all time, Mullah Nasruddin, or Hoja Nasruddin. Uh, Actually, when I was undergraduate, I forgot to mention that I also took Turkish, and my Turkish teacher was a man whom I remained in contact and um, respected and admired my whole life, a man named uh, Talat Halman, who just passed away this last uh, January, and about whom I would definitely say, Inna lillahi wa Inna lillahi raja'un. And so when I was thinking about this chapter and I thought about Professor Talat Hallman, um I found myself going back to one of his, um, I mean, this man had published maybe over 80 books and, um, you know, at least half of them are translations. And one is translation of the tales of Nasruddin Khoja. So I went back to Professor Talat Halman and his translation, and he had this to say about Nasruddin Khoja. Nasseri Hoja is a judge of high repute. One day he and Tamerlane, the 14th century Mongol conqueror, were bathing in a public bath. And Tamerlane, who of course could say anything he wanted, turned to the Khoja and asked him, if I were a serf for sale, what price would you be willing to pay for me? And without hesitation, the Hoja replied, two coins. Oh, come on, be fair, retorts Tamerlane. My towel alone is worth two coins. Actually, replies the hoja, it was the towel's worth that I had in mind. So here is this extraordinary exchange between somebody who is, you know, an everyday Muslim, but he's obviously got some respect because he's a hoja or judge, but he's with the most powerful man of his time, and he can still tell a joke of him in the public bath and live to go to, back to court or go back to his home or go to tell another joke. And I think that the deeper seriousness of this joke is that they're both privileged. They're both men of privilege. They come from the higher strata of Muslim society, the highest stratum of Muslim society. And it's a society which is essentially defined by men. It's not that there aren't women. There are many women, uh, but there are not women who become memorialized. And when I go on to talk about this chapter or the, the very first um, thing I do is to qualify the pronoun about men and say that you immediately want to talk about women as well as men who reflected on Allah over time. And elsewhere in the book, I do have references to women, but in the annals of great Muslim thinkers who are the intellectual giants of Islam over time, one has to admit that it is a largely male club. And so I go on then to talk about who are those members of this male club, and I talk about many of the philosophers and the issues. You ask the question, what are the questions that they describe? Well, the major one, of course, is the universe: how does it come into being, and how does one even imagine that there could be a single force creating the universe? The Greeks pondered this, the Hebrews pondered this, and became a subject for, of course, Christian um, theology and philosophy, and so. No surprise, it's also there uh, in Islam. And uh, one of the main people who deals with this issue is Ibn Sina. And I have a lot to say about how he relates to Aristotle and the notion of what's called Latin creatio creatio ex nihilo, which means creation from nothing, as opposed to creation from a single um, moment um, uh, over time. And and the whole tradition of Neoplatonism which uh, Ibn Sina understood, but also relates later to Persian thinkers like Mir Damad and Sadra. I I review most of them, but I, above all, look at this group called the Mautazilites, who are thought to be rationalists, and they are thought to be those who from, especially in the 8th and ninth century, uh, contradicted the Quran and the notion that in the Quran, uh, it's only Allah who is not only the source of all authority, but also, obviously, uh, the originator of the universe, of earth, and of humankind. And how does one s- square, as it were, that scientific exploration of perhaps a notion of creation without a particular point of definition or creatio ex nihilo with all the, the uh, laudations, the praises, and invocations of Allah Ta'ala, all, all of the Almighty that come up in the Quran? Or to put it very bluntly in terms of Sufism, how do you reconcile the unseen, unknowable God of science with the 99 beautiful names, which are known as the Asma al-Husna, that are so important uh, throughout uh, Islamic devotion and not least to those who are de- defined as Sufis? So I talk about the knowledge class, about Ibn Sina, his rival, Ibn uh, Rushd, um, or I should say Ibn Sina and, and Ghazali, and then Ghazali's rival, Ibn Rushd, Uh, Other Sufis like Ibn Atayla and, of course, um, Ibn Arabi, Sheikh Akbar from 13th century and Rumi. But I also end this chapter with a group that I think, for me, uh, defines the beauty as well as the dilemma of Islamic science. And this is uh, a group that is known as the Ikhwan al-Safa, going back to the 8th century, but continually important for um, 400 or 500 years after Uh, the time of of the publication of their letters or desail. And one of the things that I do in that chapter, which is an intimation of what I do in the rest of the book, is to show a picture. And it's a picture of an experiment, a scientific experiment, um, by one of the major figures in in the Ikhwan al-Safa, a person known as Jabal ibn Hayyan. And I have a picture that is done of him, um, not by somebody who's contemporary, but by the great Indian painter, M.F. Um, Hussein, Mahbul Fitah Hussain, about whom I talk later. So to answer your question, I, um, I focus on men, admitting the limitations of that, but reflecting the limitations also of history, and then talk about major issues, especially the creation of the world out of nothing, but then also the problem of how one deals with scientific experiment and reconciles its claims with those of the Holy Quran. Uh, so let's focus
1: a bit, uh, Dr. Lawrence, on your discussion of important Sufi uh, mystics and scholars and their discussions uh, on the idea of Allah. And in this uh, next chapter, uh, you especially focus on the thought of a medieval uh, Sufi giant and a contemporary Sufi, uh, Ibn Arabi, and then Baba uh, uh, the, the the saint uh, who's uh, buried in Pennsylvania, originally from Sri Lanka. Uh, can you share with us, what you distilled from their discourses on Allah and what you found particularly fascinating with respect to these two thinkers and with respect to uh, the place of discussions on Allah in the Sufi tradition.
0: Well, I have to say that among the many discoveries of this book, and there were several that really surprised me, um, I had given, and I still do give a number of lectures in different places across the country, Um, And it was actually back in the 1990s that I was invited to Iowa um, and I gave a talk um, um, of the kind I'm often required to give is, you know, why is Islam not uh, simply dismissed as a religion of violence? How can you justify being a scholar of Islam when basically most Muslims are terrorists? It's a kind of question that um, is mind numbing, but it still gets asked again and again and again. So at this point, when I was in Iowa back in the 1990s, you may recall um, the time of the um, engagement with Iraq, with the the incipient fear about um, the uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, although, of course, the attacks of 9-11 hadn't happened. And so I gave a talk where I said, instead of talking about violence uh, and terrorism, uh, can I talk about patience and Sufism? And I I gave a talk stressing mainly one of the 99 names of God in the traditional order of 998 is given as the last one, Yasabur, Yasabur. It's often repeated. And I remind people that it's repeated uh, not because God needs to be reminded of patience, but because to the extent that human beings can imitate divine attributes, patience is probably the one that most escapes us. So uh, that's a bit of self criticism I think uh, applies uh, to all people, not just to Muslims, but it's enshrined in. Again, it's enacted, it's performed as part of devotion in, in in Islam, above all by Sufis. And among the great people who really have explored the meaning of the divine names and the notion of faith is this man you mentioned, uh, Baba Mahiaddin, uh, who's originally from Sri Lanka and now buried uh, near Philadelphia. I believe... I believe you've been to his gravesite, isn't that right? That's correct.
1: I was there a few weeks ago. That's right.
0: Well, I have to say, you've done something which I hope I get to do. Uh, I, it's uh, something which I had thought I should do, but after writing this book, I now feel a kind of inner connection with this um, amazing person. Because uh, out in Iowa, after I finished this talk on patients, uh, somebody from the audience came up to me and said, I think you might like to uh, have a book which was given to me by my master. And he was an Anglo-American guy like me. And I said, what do you mean your master? He said, well, I became a Sufi because um, I heard about this fellow with, from Pennsylvania. And I went to hear him one time. And I really was so taken with the message. I became Muslim and became a Sufi. And I'm a follower of Sheikh Baba Muhayyiddin. So I had this book, which I, I have to admit, I had not read until about five, four, five years ago. I pulled it off the shelf. And it's called The Residence of Allah. And I just fell into the book i couldn't I couldn't believe the, the deep reflection uh, and also the very lapid writer and of course it was this Sheikh um, Baba Muideen from Sri Lanka who came to Philadelphia, taught there, lived there, with, died and was buried there. Um, it was his book that I was reading, and so when I came to the section of talking about Allah remembered. So I began by talking about Allah invoked. I explored what that's Allah invoked, thinking with the, speaking with the tongue, Uh, Allah defined, using the mind to think about Allah. When I came to chapter three, the one I'm now talking about, Allah remembered using the heart or feeling Allah through all one's being. I was, I was simply awestruck by this chapter from Sheikh Baba Mahayuddin, which starts out by saying the real key to connecting with Allah is not through the heart but the stomach. It's what you eat that determines how you feel, how you pray, how your mind, body, and soul connect to your heart. So I was I was really taken with it. I spent days poring over this chapter and myself trying some of the practices, and I found it just totally beguiling. So in this chapter, I think it's really the. In fact, I think if you look at the whole book. The longest section I devote to any one single person and his or her thought uh, is this section it, towards the end of third chapter. Allah remembered, where I talk about an exuberant Tamil peer. He's from South India, so his basic language is Tamil. An exuberant Tamil peer's reimagining of Allah as Noor or divine light. So I am. Uh, I obviously, because I know Sanskrit, I, I, I could see parallels between what he was thinking and something like the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. So I think the comparisons are very interesting with, with Sanskrit and Indic and Hindu thought. But I also think it stands on its own as a kind of adaptive, but wonderfully flexible, nuanced way of thinking about Islam in another idiom. And so uh, I, uh, when I get to the end of this long section talking about him, I I say, how does one go from dietetic to calligraphic piety? That is, to go from dieting, trying to catch the stomach and rein it in, and to go to thinking about writing letters of God and what does it mean to write as a profession of faith? So he really, um, to me, combined both the expressive, which is what you see and what you write, but also with what you touch and feel and what you eat as part and parcel of the quest for Allah. So... Uh, I haven't talked much about Ibn Arabi, but I talk about him elsewhere. Um, I think the novelty for me in this book was the discovery and then the attempt to make sense of Bab al
1: So in the next chapter, uh, you talk about uh, the idea of how Allah gets intertwined with what one might call contemporary geopolitics, and you discuss both uh, polemicists against Islam, and you also mention some Important modern Muslim uh, figures and scholars like Sayyid Qutb and Osama bin Laden and their mobilization of Allah. So, uh, could you share with us a bit what you argue with respect to the contemporary geopolitics of Allah and narratives of Islamophobia and then uh, the, these Muslim figures like Sayyid Qutb and Osama bin Laden and how they have uh, mobilized Allah for varied ideological uh, projects and so on? Yeah, one of the, one of the, um,
0: surprises that an editor actually was Albert Harani, the wonderful uh, Oxford scholar of the modern Middle East who wrote the book called The History of the Arab Peoples. And I once had the privilege of teaching with Albert Harani at Dartmouth College. And Albert at one time said to me, um, Bruce, if you're going to be a writer, I'd already written a couple books at that point, but he said, if you're going to be a writer on difficult topics, ignore the reviews. And I was really glad, um, A, that I knew Albert Harani. And B, that he told me that, and C, that I could remember that when I read the first review of this book. And actually, um, many people read it think it's very positive. But for me, of course, having written the book and now reading this as the first review, it, 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 it um, came out in Publishers Weekly. Um, and it said all kinds of nice things. This book is like a, a reflection, a meditation on the divine names of Allah. And this person looks at the subtlety as well as the elusiveness and importance of Allah. But then I said, and deals with some improbable topics like bin Laden. And I thought, why is it improbable to mention the name Osama bin Laden when one's talking about Allah? Because if you do, as I tried to do back about 10 years ago, um, a review of bin Laden's addresses, what I call his um, sermons, and think about his messages, uh, reference to the Quran and Islamic tradition, He invokes Allah all the time, and it seems to me to ignore him or to deny him um, the role as an agent, exponent of Allah is to just say uh, only my kind of people can talk about God or only my sort of Muslims uh, are the ones I'm going to mention uh, about Allah. In other words, all Sufis and no um, uh, Spartan and sometimes uh, very radical um, minded Muslims who, who could be called uh, either terrorists or freedom fighters, depending on your perspective. So I really felt that I couldn't write a book about Allah without going back to bin Laden. But I I want to say that at the end of this, after dealing with the whole question of violence in Islam and dealing with Sayyid Qutb, who pre- precedes bin Laden in one sense is his model, although he de- deviates from him in major ways, I really felt that one of the things that I also had to do was to say, listen, uh, and this is, I think, the most important message in that whole chapter. At the end of it, when I said, you know, what have I just talked about? I've talked about Allah as violent, but then I say Allah is no more violent than Yahweh of the Hebrew Bible or less loving than the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit of the New Testament. What is necessary is also difficult to restore context into each statement that begins, Islam is, the Quran says, Muslims believe. Because all three of these point to a global civilization. The religion is Islam, the book is the Quran, the community at large are Muslims. But each has an enormous internal variety. So if you only look at the earliest period, and I do really, I make this claim in that chapter and I will stand by it, if you look only at the earliest period, Muslims are more peaceful and nonviolent than Mahatma Gandhi or George Fox. But if one looks only at the most recent period, the last 20 years, from Sayyidina to, to bin Laden, one might say that they're as violent or m- more violent um, than some figures from contemporary uh, European history. But my point is that it really matters where and when you look at the question of Allah. And uh, my critique of um, Ayan Hirsa Ali in this op-ed piece I did in the Washington Post Uh, is that she wants to say the only good Muslims are the Meccan Muslims. And by the time you get to Medina in 622 and what happens in the last 10 years, 622 to 632 of the Prophet's life, peace be upon him, and everything that happened since then in Muslim history reflects the Medinan Muslim outlook, and that has to be rejected. So it's as if, you know, we could cut out a whole slice of Muslim history, like everything that happened after the first 12 years, and go back to the very beginning and adopt that as the only fair brand of Islam in the modern world. I, I just think that's not only false, I think it's um, impossible. And I think it, it misreads the complex textured nature of Muslim history. And on just this question of violence, um, I go from bin Laden in this chapter, which um, obviously this one reviewer thought was a little bit off the mark to to a a, a modern novelist named Willow Wilson. And I think one of my favorite things in this whole book was, again, uh, my my top favorite was discovering Baba Mahayyadeen. But my other almost second favorite moment was rediscovering this novelist, Willow Wilson, who wrote a book called Aleph the Unseen. And I say about Willow Wilson that she's like bin Laden because she's a devout Muslim. She's also a committed activist. But she sees the most important thing, and I haven't mentioned this, although I do elsewhere in the book, I haven't mentioned it up to now in the interview, the most important thing for her is not to just see this world and the next world, but to see how the two are always connected by something that she calls the Barzakh, B-A-R-Z-A-K-H. And I think this whole notion of the Barzakh, which is crucial to Ibn Arabi, if I talked more about Ibn Arabi, I could have gone on to his notion of the Barzakh Other people like Bill Chittick and Jim Morris have talked a lot about Ibn Arabi and the Barzakh. But Willow Wilson, who's not a theologian but a novelist, I think captures the notion of Barzakh beautifully because she says Barzakh is both and, neither nor. And because it's both and, neither nor, it's that realm that is inhabited by jinn. And so her novel is all about the role of jinn. J-I-N-N, a jinn, or I, I say one of the side boxes of this, of, of this uh, book, who is Allah. The jinn are also known in English as genie, and some people just dismiss them, but she takes them as real players who are like humans, except they have different bodies, different talents, different ways of communicating. But for me, the real answer to bin Laden is not to ignore him, but to confront him, analyze him, and pair him, and compare him with someone like Willow Wilson and to recognize that Barzakh is perhaps the realm that we ought to explore instead of talking about the uh, end of time uh, as if the only meaning of Islam or the Quran is an eschatology uh, which ends in doom and death. So my my message in this chapter is there is a lot to debate about Allah but if we and we can't ignore geopolitics, but we also have to look at very interesting novels and explorations of Allah. And in my mind, one of the best and most fruitful of those is Willow Wilson, Allah of the Unseen. Who is
1: Allah online uh, is a question you ask and address in the last chapter of this book. Uh, So what are some of the possibilities, potentialities, but also the challenges that digital technology uh, presents with regards to how Allah is remembered, imagined, and also contested, uh, you, you, you point out uh, different kinds of ideological battles which are fought online in terms of how to imagine uh, Allah and, 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 and divine norms uh, uh, in society and so on. So could you uh, talk a bit about uh, the last chapter and uh, uh, the larger theoretical problem of digital technology and its uh, potentialities and challenges and also the kinds of discussions that go online uh, that you discuss in this chapter? <clears throat>
0: I should say that unlike the second chapter, Allah defined this last one, Allah online was not a question of whether I write it or how I write it, but how do I limit it? Um, I must say that in an earlier version of this book, the chapter Allah online was an earlier, earlier uh, moved up to an earlier spot in the book. And it was almost twice the length. Now I was looking here and it's about 20 pages. Now it was once about 35 pages. And I realized that uh, uh, every one of us is, is, is a child of our time, uh, as, as Marx once remarked, but the problem is that you have to also recognize that there are times before yours. And so I always reminded myself, and of course my children, and I also have grandchildren, um, it's easier to remind my children than my grandchildren that there was a time before the internet. Um, and then they say, but oh, but it's, everything's changed now, so who cares? But I do care, and I think everybody who reads this book or everybody who thinks about Allah should care that it's only in really about the last 20 years, since 1994, 95, that we've had this thing called the World Wide Web and the Internet. And the difficulty is that it, is, it has mobilized and transformed um, not only communication, but our lives so rapidly and so thoroughly that it's more difficult than ever to sort of recapture um, a pre-digital moment. To imagine what it's like to write people letters instead of send them email messages um, and to send people congratulations uh, that are not on Facebook uh, but on telephone. So there's a sense in which all online only occupies the last chapter, but many people will think about that as the most important chapter or even the only chapter that matters because they themselves are the children of their time, which means they're under 20 years of age or if they're over than 20, if they're even 30, they think of their whole uh, youth and early adulthood as having been shaped by the internet. So what I try and do, and it's a really tough task, and I I don't think I succeeded, but I think I've tried about as well as uh, at least I can in 2015, I've tried to say, how do you talk about something which is still evolving, still changing, and will have changed within a year or two years after I've written and published this book? but recognize that Allah online is not the same as Allah offline, and that online, what you have in cyberspace are numerous notions of Allah that go from the really ridiculous, or at least to me, the ones that need to be challenged and cited as ridiculous, like uh, Jack Chick comic strips, which talk about um, Islam and the Prophet uh, as simply... Fair fair game for pillage, or for polemics, and they do it through comic strips. Um, or the various uh, kinds of news outlets that you have online, uh, which also talk about Islam um, and Allah uh, as the enemy, rather than the uh, access and agent of hope uh, for, the, for the present age. So I try and, and, and give all those websites, including the negative ones that talk about Allah and Islam, some credit. But then also to look at the problem of even well-intentioned Muslims, and I I mentioned this one uh, very major figure online, although offline he doesn't become very important, or hasn't become very important, Ahmed Halusi, who says, you know, if you go online and look at the Quran online and think about Allah online, all you have to do is apply string theory and holographic uh, principle, and you come up with the essence of, what I call the Tao, the thing, the absolute, the one, as equivalent to the letter uh, B in the Basmala, and equivalent to the dot that's under the B. And I I look at this not because I think Ahmed Halusi is the most important person to represent Islam online, but because he represents what a lot of people would like to do, which is to have a quick answer, uh, one that's readily disseminated and available across the globe, that explains the mysteries uh, of the Quran, the word of Allah, in a way that conforms to modern science and makes it easy to be a Muslim, and above all, um, a Muslim who is inclined uh, to Sufism. And I just think this is too easy and slippery an approach, and so I, I talk about it, but also say it's not as uh, subtle as um, Willa Wilson, who does deal with recursive algorithms, uh, but not with regressive uh, holographic principle in her book. So I, I take on science, in effect, the reason I like this chapter and the reason it's important is I take on science. At one point in my life, I also was going to be a math physics major, so it gives me a chance to revisit some of those elements from my own past, my own kind of mental um, game world. Uh, but then I also look at some of the feminists, because I say there haven't been many women in the book up till now, but I can find a lot online, uh, and among those whom I talk about uh, is the Egyptian author, who's also a friend of mine, Nawal Saadawi, and her whole... Um, effort to say, instead of just thinking about Allah, we have to think about Allah, the notion that God could be female. And what does that mean to talk about God as gendered, either male or female? But then I also say, after all those battles online, you have to come offline. And for me, that means looking at art. And among the most uh, expressive pieces of art that I found is one that I also put on the cover of this book. So it it comes from a painting of the Moroccan artist, uh, Muhammad Malihi, uh, it was one that he did uh, back in the mid 80s when he was also visiting as a scholar uh, in residence at Duke University where I've taught and where I think you were for a period of time. And so it's this painting from Malik that I put on the cover of the book, but I also talk about in this chapter. And it's with reference to the the simple letter, which uh, can also be the pronoun who. It's the letter ha, which can be the pronoun who, which can represent allahu in the name Allah. Uh, And so I talk about in this chapter Allah online also trying to frame and trying to make sense, trying to get a perspective of Allah online and offline.
1: Now, you dedicate uh, this book to M.F. Hussain, the famous uh, Indian uh, painter and film director. Uh, Tell us why you dedicated uh, this book to M.F. Hussain and how his work relates to the question uh, that is the title of this book, uh, Who is Allah?
0: Well, I said that I can't explain how I became a scholar of Islam except by happenstance. And you know, I would now say in retrospect, good luck or baddeka, um in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, other in a theological vein, either both a blessing and a destiny. But either way, I don't, uh, I don't have a good explanation, just my life story of how I became a scholar of Islam. <clears throat> and I think even more puzzling to me and irrational, but still, wonderful is how I came to know M.F. Hussein. Um, Miriam Cook is um, my spouse and best friend and lifelong partner and critic. And when we went to Hutter in 2008, it was for the opening of the new Museum of Islamic Art. And along with all the pieces from um, the pre-modern empires, including, of course, the Mughal, the Safavid Ottoman, but also Seljuk and Mamluk and earlier Abbasid caliphate, some scrolls and images and astrolabes. All these things that we saw that were pre-modern were fascinating, but then on the bottom level, the entry level of this Museum of Islamic Art in Doha Qatar in 2008, were a series of paintings that were called um, the Arab art um, through history done by M.F. Hussain. And I had heard of Hamas Hussein as someone who was famous for doing uh, Indic art, especially relating to the Hindu tradition and even more to Hindu goddesses. And, of course, he had uh, faced a lot of controversy back in the 1990s because several um, Indian activists uh, who were identified with the extreme Hindu cause, otherwise known as Hindutva, had claimed that a Muslim, and especially a Muslim artist, could not represent a Hindu goddess, that that itself was profane, uh, was, if you will, a form of sacrilege, uh, and if certainly according to the Indian Constitution, offended their religious sensibilities. So, Emma got in trouble in India for his um, Indic or Hindu art, uh, eventually he had to leave India, and when I saw him in 2008, he'd just come to Qatar for this opening of the Museum of Islamic Art and and the show of his own new series on Arab art. And then when I went back to Qatar in 2010, He had relocated there because life had become too difficult back in India and he had to find uh, another place to be a citizen but also to continue to be an artist. The interesting thing about this is, as you said, he's a famous painter, but I think even more intriguing about M.F. Hussain is that when I met him, he was 93. When he died, he was 96. In other words, this is a man who continued to paint from the time he was a teenager, 13, 14 years old, I think he said he was, when he did his first piece of art. So for, you know, roughly um, 80 years, this man was a practicing artist. And so when I met him, instead of retiring or slowing down, he was filled, his imagination was overflowing with ideas. And at one point, I went to visit him, we became quite close, and I went to visit him. And I saw this painting, which I had not seen in the Uh, Museum of Islamic Art in 2008 and I said oh it's Allahu Akbar and that's why it's in my book and that's why I dedicate the book to him so I said this is Allahu Akbar I said I I wasn't really aware of the fact that you you know thought of yourself as an Islamic artist I knew he's a Muslim artist I knew his background was Muslim but I hadn't realized that he was playing directly with Islamic themes oh he says I have always been indebted to Islam through Yemen and it turns out even though he's Indian his background, his larger family, because he's a, a Suleimani Bora, not a Daudi Bora, but a Suleimani Bohra, mm-hmm. that is a um, person who identifies with the Shi'i tradition through the Bohras, but not through Daud or David, but through Suleiman or Suleiman. Because he's a Suleimani Bora, he traces his family origin and lineage back to Yemen, and Yemen in the 16th century was very closely tied to Ethiopia. So he said, I feel a strong identity of Ethiopia, and especially with Bilal, the first um, call to prayer wasn't in Islam, and we had this conversation. I said, Okay, so I understand this painting that you've done, that's Bilal, but tell me, um, why did you do it in 2008? And why does this person who's Bilal have these funny ears? And so he looked at me and he said, Oh, so you've caught the ears. He says, Well, actually, it is the face of Obama, but it is a face, I already gave it away. It's the face of Bilal, but the ears of Obama. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, because I was so excited in 2008, in October, November 2008, when there was a presidential election, I said, the one thing will never happen is the U.S. can never elect a black man as president. And I stayed up all night to listen to the results. And when I found out that they'd done it, I was too excited to go to sleep. Of course, he was, you know, 93 years old at the time, but he was still too excited to go to sleep. And then he said to me, and it's the line which I will never forget, it took America 200 years to do what Islam did in less than 10 years. Make a black man its major icon to the outside world. Now, is that a a perfect comparison? No, but it's an interesting parallel between the role of Bilal in early Islam and the role of President Obama as being the first African-American president. I know that Donald Trump won't like this comparison, but he probably won't listen to the interview, so I think I'm safe in saying that it's what made Emma Hussain not just a good friend, but somehow an aspiring figure to me, and I couldn't think of anybody better than he, uh, or other than him, to whom I would dedicate this book. Although I want to quickly add, there are other artists. Um, there's I mentioned Nawal Saadawi, but there's also... Um, Ahmed Mustafa, who's a wonderful um, painter, and who's done, of course, the 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 uh, the, the, the Muhammad Assad uh, messages of the Quran. He's done the, the, the all the the introductory pages of certain chapters of the Quran. There, uh, wonderful calligraphy, and of course, the Maliki, whose painting is on the, the the cover of the book. And I have to also mention Muhammad Zakaria, um, the the American. Muslim calligrapher who did the Eid stamp uh, back in two thousand, um, who, who who provided me with uh, Lasse Jalal, a word that is um, for Allah Jalal Jalalahu at the end at the beginning of each chapter. So in many ways there are other artists and MF, and of course I'm sorry I should should mention the the Indonesian woman artist and performing artist ah- ah- who did the Allah plate that is at the beginning of the last chapter conclusion. You know, in many ways all these people are. Uh, especially the artists are part and parcel of why it was possible and also enjoyable uh, to do this book Who is Allah?
1: So uh, Dr. Lawrence as we are approaching uh, the end of our time uh, uh, with this uh, conversation uh, could you share with us the kinds of projects that you are working on these days and uh, the kinds of uh, things that we uh, could expect to read from you and learn from you in the coming uh, months and
0: years? Well I think I've already mentioned uh, this work I'm doing with my colleague and friend, my former colleague and continuing friend uh, Vincent Cornell, the Wiley Blackwell Companion uh, on Islamic Spirituality. I'm hoping that we'll finish the parts of that, including my part on the performative approach to Islamic spirituality. I hope we'll finish that this summer. That book should be out next year. I'm also finishing a book which will either be done this summer or in the fall, uh, which is kind of a sequel to the book I did on the Quran a biography. Um, that book will be called the, um, the Quran, spelled deliberately K-O-R-A-N, the Quran in English. And it w- will be in the series, um, the lives of great religious books for Princeton University Press. <clears throat> and it will be a book looking at all the translations uh, of the Holy Quran into English um, going, going back to pre-modern times, Robert of Ketton, whom I deal with in my book The Qur'an of Biography, but up to Muhammad Assad, and even people like uh, uh, Thomas uh, Cleary and Sando Birk, who didn't do a translation but did uh, various uh, depictions of verses from the Qur'an in, in a series of collages called the American Qur'an. So I'm going to deal with, with all these people, and not everyone, but there are now in 2015, 117 full translations of the Quran, the Holy Quran, into English. So I'm not going to deal with all of them, but I'm going to at least address the, the, the ebb and flow of these uh, renditions of the Holy Quran into English in my book for Princeton University Press. I hope by the end of this year um, and early next year, 2016, I will have finished a book I've been working on almost as long as Who is Allah? Um, it's one that started out as again, it was for Wiley Blackwell, it was in their, their manifesto series um, where Terry Eagleton and Martin Marty and, and Gary Wills and others have produced volumes. And mine was supposed to be on the topic of um, Muslim, um, Muslim cosmopolitanism. And at one point, I shifted from Muslim to Islamic cosmopolitanism. And now, in a series of detours, I have decided that I really shouldn't talk about Muslim or Islamic, but instead Islamicate Cosmopolitan. So this manifesto, and it's necessarily going to be a manifesto, which will deal with art. And by the way, I would say, I will say, that one of the chapters that will deal with a figure who deserves, and I hope will remain an Islamicate Cosmopolitan, is M.F. Hussein. So there will be connections between that book, Islamicate Cosmopolitan, And some parts of Who is Allah that uh, we've just been discussing. So, those, so I have one edited volume with, uh, actually, it's going to be probably a very large volume uh, with 30 different contributors, but uh, the major framing essays with Professor Cornell called The Wiley Blackwell Companion to Islamic Spirituality, um, the book on the Quran um, in in English with Princeton, um, The Islamicate Cosmopolitan uh, with Wiley Blackwell. And then I just have to say that this summer I'm spending five weeks uh, with a colleague from Rutgers. Um, his name is Rafi Habib, Professor Rafi Habib. And we began something two years ago. Uh, we will not be completed until 2017, maybe even the spring of 2018. And this is a new verse translation of the Holy Quran. I don't say poetry. I say verse because one of the things that uh, uh, Rafi and I are trying to do is to capture something of the music, of the tone, uh, not just the words and meanings. but If I could say it, the performative sound. Yes, let me say it. The performative sound of the Quran, not just as an Arabic text, which can never be repeated and which re- remains by itself and will always be unrepeatable, but something of the echo of that Arabic Quran in English verse. And we're done, I think we've done maybe about one-fifth of the whole Holy Quran now. We're hoping that this summer we will maybe get up as close as two-fifths, but that still leaves a lot to do. Uh, but we work on it. Uh, I should say we work on it every week. Sometimes it works on it. It seems that we get to do it a couple days. Some days we skip and don't do it for uh, a, a whole ten days. But we, we, probably, we probably do the equivalent of almost five days every month. But then in the in the summer month, we get together and for four or five weeks, we do nothing but this.
1: Who is Allah by Professor Bruce Lawrence, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Lawrence, for your time for this wonderful uh, book and uh, for this conversation. Really uh, enjoy talking to you and uh, reading this book. So, thank you so much uh, for your time uh, today.
0: You're welcome, Sher Ali. Thank you for the questions and for your uh, your patient persistence and all the answers. Thank you.
1: So this was my conversation with Dr. Bruce Lawrence on his wonderful new book, Who is Allah? Please also join us next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you so much for listening. And this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off.